Chapter 18 of Tom of the Raiders by Austin Bishop. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. North of the Tennessee. Dawn found Tom near the house of the ferryman who had taken him across on his trip south. Rather than risk another walk through the fields and woods, he had chosen to follow the bank of the river until he came to a road. That course, even though it was longer, made less demand upon his strength, for the walking was easier. He skirted the ferryman's house and took to the road. For a little while, at least, he would be safe from interference. Then, when light came, he would forage for food. Food! It had been thirty-six hours since he had eaten. So long ago that the pains in his stomach had stopped. He was weak and dizzy, and the importance of ever reaching the Union lines shrunk as he thought of finding something to eat. Anything. Security? What good was security if it meant starvation? Oh, shut up and keep your legs moving! he said to himself, wrathfully, shaking such thoughts from his head. He took another twist at the improvised hunger belt. It really did help, he decided. At his left he saw Murdoch's house, and the words of the negro boy came back to him. He keeps dogs. Dogs for tracking down escaping slaves, or Yankees. Now for the first time it seemed to Tom that the rain that had fallen during the past week was befriending him. The ground was too wet to hold a scent. If Murdoch's dogs were brought out to chase him, they would be hopelessly muddled and lost. Nevertheless, his step quickened. After he had walked another mile, the faster pace began to tell upon him, and he lagged. I have to rest, I guess, he said, and he entered the woods. A chill seized him as soon as he sat down. He arose and remarked, If I sit down, I'm finished, and I can't walk much farther. I wonder. He had been fighting the idea of going to the Beecham's, or rather, to Marjorie. She was the one person he knew south of the lines who would help him. Yet he had been trying to keep the thought of going to her out of his mind. It might involve her in danger. Three miles above the Beecham's there was another farm. He had planned to go there, to tell them that he had just come through the Union lines to enlist with the South and ask for food. But now he realized that he could not walk four miles. One mile to the Beecham's, then three more to the farm. If his legs would carry him for one mile, they would be doing well. It was difficult even to stand, and the woods and sky lurched and whirled about him. "'I'll go to Marjorie,' he muttered. "'Get word to her some way. She'll help.' He started for the road, then stopped. If an alarm were raised, and Murdoch's dogs were brought out, they might track him along the road. Somewhere behind the Beecham's house, running through the woods, there was a small stream. It came within three hundred yards of the house. Then there was a long row of thick bushes which led to the garden. The negro's shanties were far to the other side. He had taken all of them in at a glance when he rode away. It seemed that years had passed since that day. He stumbled through the woods until he came to the stream, then he splashed along through the water. That would kill the scent. He had read of slaves wading through the streams to throw dogs off. It was just like an escaping slave now, he thought. It was curious that he should know all the dread and terror that they felt, that he should be experiencing the same sort of manhunt. He felt sick of the thought of all the brutality men were showing to each other. The killing, the destruction of war, the gigantic effort to bring ruin down upon each other. Such ideas went streaking through his mind as he stumbled along the rough bed of the stream. It was incredible, unbelievable. The railroad raid seemed like some sick man's dream, crazy, tortured, and awful. He knelt down in the water and splashed it over his face, took a drink. His head became clear again. He pulled himself to his feet. Through the trees he could see the Beecham's house, stark white in the early morning light. It was after seven o'clock, he thought, and the family would soon be at breakfast. A small stream of smoke drifted up from the kitchen chimney, wavering and drooping in the still air. 
Tom left the stream and entered the bushes. When he was within fifty yards of the house, he dropped to the ground. An instant later, he felt himself going to sleep. It was like whirling through a great dark space to oblivion. He awoke two hours later and felt the warm sun beating down upon him. He raised his head and glanced about, recollecting how he had come there. Then he squirmed through the branches and looked toward the house. There, in the garden, stood Marjorie, snipping at a rose bush with a pair of scissors. "'Marjorie!' he called hoarsely. She glanced at the house as though she thought that someone there had called her. "'Marjorie!' she turned in his direction. "'It's Tom Burns, over here, down at the end of this row, in the bushes.' Her scissors dropped to the ground, and her hands went to her throat in a gesture of alarm. "'Come here,' he said, "'but slowly, so that they won't know.' She recovered the scissors hurriedly and came toward him. "'Where are you?' she gasped. "'Here, hiding. Stop at that last rose-bush and pretend to be working.' "'Oh, Tom, you've escaped. You got away.' "'Yes, but I'm famished. Crossed the Tennessee last night. Nothing to eat since night before last. Can you—' "'Yes, I'll get you something,' she gasped. "'I'm so glad you escaped. I've been worried. Wait there.' She walked toward the house and entered. Presently she came out of the kitchen door and sauntered into the garden again. "'I told Maddie the cook,' she said as she came near him and went to trimming the rose-bush again. "'She understands. Her little boy is going to bring you something to eat. Here he comes.' He looked out and saw the little colored boy, Jasper, running to the stable. He entered— and appeared a second later out of the rear door. Then he made a wide detour to avoid being seen from the house, and disappeared in the woods. "'As soon as he comes, go back until you're out of sight of the house. I'll meet you there. Watch for me.' "'Yes, I understand.' She turned away, walked idly through the garden, and entered the kitchen again. Presently Tom heard the crackle of branches, and Jasper, his eyes and mouth wide open, came through the bushes. "'Here, Jasper,' said Tom. "'Come on. I won't hurt you.' The boy had stopped, suddenly terror-stricken. "'Come on, Jasper!' He approached cautiously, step by step, holding a package before him. He dropped it when Tom put his hand out, and hurried back a few feet. "'Now, Jasper, you go right back to your mammy again,' said Tom. "'Don't say a word to anyone.' Jasper nodded vigorously, then fled. In the package, Tom found bread and chicken. At first he revolted at the odor of food. Then his appetite awoke, and he wanted to wolf it down but he ate slowly, making his way towards the wood, as Marjorie had said. He stopped beside the stream, where he could watch for her. Soon he caught a glimpse of her white dress, and he called. She hurried toward him. "'I read all about it in the Atlanta paper,' she said. "'You were in the railroad raid, weren't you?' "'Yes.' "'I knew. Oh, you're all wet. What happened to you? Oh, Tom!' "'Wet?' he said. "'I've been wet for so long I've forgotten about it. You sit down there where you can see if anyone is coming. He pointed to a log. I'll lie here and rest. He wrapped his cape about him and stretched out on the ground. I didn't want to come here, Marjorie, for fear I'd get you in trouble, but I was starved into it. Will you forgive me? Oh, I'm glad you came. I've been worrying ever since you left. I didn't know what you were going to do, and I was afraid you'd be caught. Then the news of the raid and the stolen engine came. I knew that you were one of the men. Uncle didn't guess it until yesterday, when he read about it in the Atlanta paper. Tell me about it, please. What did your uncle say? How did he guess that I was one of them? The paper said that some of the men were captured, and that they told the story about coming from Kentucky. When uncle read that, he... he... What did he do? He swore terribly, answered Marjorie. Auntie sent me from the room, but tell me about it. 
Oh, what's the matter, Tom? He had risen on his elbows, then fallen back on the ground. Nothing, he said. I'm dizzy, that's all. Every once in a while it strikes me. Wait a second, and I'll be all right. She knelt beside him and touched his forehead. You're feverish, she said. Oh, Tom, I... I... Can't I do anything? Feverish? exclaimed Tom. I'm so cold that I can't move. I'm frozen. His teeth were chattering, and he commenced to shiver. I'll be all right in a minute. Guess I'd better get up. He arose, then sat down abruptly on the log, for his legs felt too weak to support him. I'm sorry, Marjorie, he said. I'm pretty tired. She watched him, too alarmed to speak. She exclaimed, But you are feverish, Tom. Oh, I didn't know. I might have seen that you were sick. The rest of her words were lost in the great buzzing noise which filled his head. Everything turned black before him. Black, filled with a thousand shooting colors. Then the world gave a vicious lurch which toppled him over. He awoke, flat on the ground, with Marjorie leaning above him, crying and dabbing his forehead with a wet handkerchief. Fainted, he mumbled disgustedly. Fool to faint. He closed his eyes again to rid himself of dizziness. Big baby. Sorry, Marjorie. You must come to the house, Tom, cried Marjorie. It doesn't make any difference about Uncle. I'll tell him that he must take you in. He must. He must. No, I'll be all right in a minute. Terribly hot. Take this cape off. He tried to get out of the cape, but she stopped him. It's too hot, he protested, but he let her draw the cape up more tightly about him. Won't you let me take you to the house? she begged. No, have to get back to the lines. But, Tom, you can't. You're sick. It's the fever that makes you hot. Oh, Tom. Got to get back to the lines, he interrupted. Start in a few minutes. I guess. Sleep a little first. Mustn't be captured. You wake me up if anyone comes. Murdoch's dogs. It was night when his brain cleared again. He was wrapped in blankets, lying comfortably on the ground. Overhead, the branches of the trees, black against the sky, waved solemnly. You wake, massa? Tom started at the voice. An old negro was sitting beside him. Yes, what? You just rest quiet, said the negro. Everything's all right. Miss Marjorie, she's coming soon. Tom closed his eyes and began to unravel the tangle of the day's events. He could remember voices which had circled around him, babbling endlessly. Two negroes who had taken off his wet clothes, put him in dry things, and wrapped him in blankets. And Maddie, the cook, who had soothed him and given him hot drinks. Then Marjorie had come. Twice he had awakened and found her sitting there. The afternoon was all confusion, like some half-forgotten thing of his imagination. But he was comfortable now, and he didn't care. He drifted off into an untroubled sleep, and awoke again with the sound of voices in his ears. In the faint light of the moon he saw two negroes squatting near him. They were talking in whispers. One of them was saying, "'Oh, Murdoch's dogs is a-crying and a-moanin'. And the other answered, Oh, Lord, and old Mammy, she's a-lookin' at the tea-grounds in a cup. what she say? She don't say nothin'. He paused to give his words effect. She got a rabbit foot. Oh, Lord, the negro glanced fearfully about them. Oh, Lord, he repeated. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. It had become a wail of terror now, a wail so piteous and so moving that Tom felt as though an icy cold hand had reached out for him, taking away all his strength. The stark trees of the lonely, shadow-infested woods seemed to press in upon them like an army of fantastic giants. The fear which was torturing the negroes came over him in a spasm, then passed away. "'What's the trouble there?' he demanded sharply. The negroes gasped audibly. "'Nothing,' 
answered one of them presently. It was the negro who had been talking about Murdoch's dogs and the rabbit's foot. What are you getting so scared about? Nothing, came the muttered response. Then don't lose your heads, replied Tom. He sat upright and sagged forward weakly. The strength seemed to flow suddenly from his body. His legs and arms felt flabby and useless. Whew! he exclaimed. I'll have to do better than this. Weak as a baby. Bracing himself up on one arm, he flexed the other slowly. The negroes watched him. Oh, lor! wailed the older negro again. Shut up! said Tom. Oh, lor! There's horses on de road. Now der are comin'. Tom listened and heard a faint clatter of hoofs, growing louder and louder. It stopped for a moment as the horseman pulled up to round the bend into the Beecham's farm. Then a man yelled, "Hey, Beecham! Beecham! Hey, Beecham! Come down for a minute. This is Kirby talking. We're on a yank hunt. Want you to help." There came a muffled response from the house. The yelling ceased, and the night was quiet again. Tom found himself on his feet, without knowing how he managed to get up. He was clinging to the trunk of a tree for support. "'Here, you,' he said to the negroes. "'They're after me. Take these blankets and get back to your huts. If they catch me, they won't catch me here.' Whimpering, the negroes scooped up the blankets. "'Wait,' ordered Tom. "'How about these clothes? Where's mine? If I'm caught in these things—' The negroes collected his clothes, which had been spread out to dry, and he changed rapidly. "'Take everything and get back as quickly as you can. Come just as soon as it's daylight to be sure you haven't left anything. Tell Miss Marjorie that I've gone.' They jumped at the crackling of some underbrush near them. It was Marjorie. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.